and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name is Jason Barnard and that was Alexis Corners Blues Incorporated. I got my mojo working. Now, that's off an album called R&B from the Marquee. Although it actually wasn't recorded at the Marquee, but the I think it must have been the label or the management decided to use that term, given the power of the uh, the brand of the Marquee and Alexis' very strong association with that fantastic venue. And that's because... There is a brilliant book out called Marquee, the Story of the World's Greatest Music Venue by Robert Sellers with Nick Pendleton. And I've got those two wonderful people here. First of all, Robert, maybe just say hello and your connection with the book and and the Marquee. Hi. Yeah, well, the idea really started with what I tend to do when I've got sort of 10 minutes to spare is uh, in between doing bits of work. The luxury of being self-employed, you can take a little mini breaks when you want. And uh, surfing YouTube, as I, as, I, as I often do. And I must have come across sort of a five-minute sort of documentary piece on the marquee. And I think everybody sort of has a, a rudimentary knowledge of, of what the marquee was, you know, that Jimi Hendrix played there, that Bowie sort of established his, his career there, et cetera, et cetera, the Who played a residency there, all those sort of very, very famous sort of iconic connections to that club. I've done a book on eating studios. I've done a book on handmade films, Radio One. So I, I, I like sort of writing books about institutions and sort of the personalities involved in, 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 in them. So um, what I often do is I, if I have an idea is go straight onto Amazon and type it in <laughs> to see if some bugger's done it before me, uh, which uh, usually they have. But this time, um, nothing nothing was coming back. So I thought, oh, so that's that's interesting. That's half the battle, but no one's done it. It's not a going concern anymore. So who who owns it? Is it in the ether or does somebody actually have a claim to it? And I found the person who actually owns sort of the, the logo, as it were, the name. And then he uh, thought it was a good idea. And then he put me in touch with Nick. We went from there, really. So, Nick, the marquee was set up by your parents. And was that the late 50s? Yeah. So I guess I guess it's a personal story for me. Yeah, I'd spent years trying to persuade my dad to write down a book. He naturally preferred to do things rather than write about them and uh, wasn't someone for self-promotion. So uh, over the years, we had a number of people try and write books. And uh, I think they were probably too close to the subject because they just ended up getting swamped by there is literally so much history there uh, and so many angles that if you're not careful, it ends up being um, you know longer than war and peace. And, and in fact, even Robert and I together, we probably could have done a three volume history and we just needed a brutal editor to uh, to get it get it down. You never know; there might be a there might be a part two. A lovely uh, publisher, Paradise Road, who specialises in London culture, done a great job in terms of the you know the the production values, the the, the cover, the index, and uh, some of the the stuff around the book. Is very proud of it. Part of this is um, yeah, doing my dad's story justice, and he wouldn't forgive me if I didn't emphasise the fifties. Because for him, he always got frustrated that the, the the start of the story was always the Rolling Stones, who actually his first ever appearance was at the uh, the first version of Marquee, not not the Wardour Street Marquee. Strangely, actually, the problem with the first Marquee was it was too glamorous. It was it was actually a, a beautifully designed ballroom in the basement of the Academy Cinema that was uh, painted as though it was a Marquee, hence the name. The marquee with the Steinway piano uh, and hugely luxurious. So, uh, so, so it's funny to think about where it where it ended up. 
but I guess you know the physicality of any place uh, isn't that important. I think some of the American acts that paid homage to the the marquee in later years, whether it's Benny King, Simon and Garfunkel, or you know, the Bangles, or or uh, Brian Adams, they must have been desperately disappointed when they walked into this uh, dark small venue. But of course, music for us isn't it, the value in it. Isn't just the notes; it's the memories it evokes, the things you discovered, the feelings it created. Uh, so, so I guess the club is much more than its physical representation. But yeah, going back, the story started really in um, in 1948, where my dad, aged 24, got a job in the city. Uh, he was a trained accountant from Southport and uh, hopped on a bus from Houston uh, and said, uh, bus driver, tell, take me where the action is. Please tell me when to get off. And he got off. Um, he was told to get off at a, at a record shop in, in Soho. And uh, started clicking through the the jazz records. It was quite a sort of bohemian pursuit at the time, jazz. And the person next to him, he befriended and and took him to a, a jazz club, and and that was a uh, Chris Barber, who's a lifelong friend and uh, partner, and my sort of godfather. It's hard to think of you know how exciting Soho must have been in those days because you know post-war Britain was pretty pretty drab. Uh, you almost still had rations yet. There was this exotic place that had um, espresso machines and Italian restaurants. I mean, it could have been landing on a on a different planet, really. Jazz first got its acceptance at um, appearing at the Royal Festival Hall as part of the um, the 1951 festival, which I guess is a re- reawakening from that post-war slump. And uh, Princess Elizabeth at the time appeared at that first gig to uh, to watch jazz, which was a, which was a great thing, and that was promoted by. Company called the National Jazz Federation, which uh, by luck and timing, my dad ended up running and used that as a vehicle to try and promote jazz. By that time, he'd, he'd given up working at the city because it was sort of dominated by pretty stuffy practices and um, the people who returned from the war. So a young person couldn't really get on, started promoting jazz, wasn't really a, a professional uh, endeavor at that time. Uh, so a little bit hand to mouth, set up two clubs in Soho. One was um, Club Creole, which which was where the, the barber band played uh, their first professional gig. And it's the first professional jazz band in the, in, in the UK. Then it moved to the London Jazz Centre in uh, 1953. And that was the UK's sort of first skiffle venue. And uh, we probably should just quickly touch on skiffle and blues because uh, in some ways, Skiffle really was the the DIY movement that sparked, say, the Quarrymen, um, which later became the Beatles to pick up their their instruments and and indeed people like the, people like the Stones. And that came about from an, an earlier record that Dad managed to get a Decca to, uh, and getting a record deal was so hard at the time to to get Decca to uh, record the Barber Band. And then two years later, after recording it in 1954, a fill-in track, which was a skiffle track that, uh, that the band used in the intervals, and, and they didn't have enough uh, material to fill out a whole album, called Rock Island Line, became a huge hit. 56, Q rated it as one of the most influential records of, of all time. Lonnie Don- Donegan became a star. Uh, and that's really what sparked uh, a lot of the youth movement in jazz and then skiffle. This here's a story about the Rock Island Line. Now, Rock Island Line, she runs down into New Orleans. And just outside of New Orleans, there's a big toll gate. And all the trains, they go through the toll gate while they, they got to pay the man some money. But of course, if you've got certain things on board, you're okay. You don't have to pay the man nothing. And just now, we see a train, she coming down the line. And when she come up near the toll gate, the driver, he shout down to the man. He say, 
got pigs, I got horses, I got cows, I got sheep, I got all livestock, I got all livestock, I got all livestock. And you may say, well, you're all right, boy, just get on through. You don't have to pay me nothing. And the train go through. And when you go through the toll gate, the train got up a little bit of steam and a little bit of speed. And when the driver think he's safely on the other side, he shout back down the line to the man. He said, I fooled you, I fooled you. I got pig iron, I got pig iron, I got oh pig iron. Now tell you where I'm going, boy. Down the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island Line is the road to ride. Yes, the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. And if you own the ride, you got to ride it like you find to get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. I may be right, I may be wrong. You know you're gonna miss me when I'm gone. Down the Rock Island Line, she's a mighty good road. The Rock Island Line is the road to ride. Yes, the Rock Island Line is a mighty good road. And if you own the ride, you got to ride it like you find to get your ticket at the station on the Rock Island Line. Lord, coming for to see me again hey. Down the Rock Island Line She's a mighty good road The Rock Island Line is the road to ride Yeah, the Rock Island Line She's a mighty good road And if you won't ride it, you gotta ride it Like you finally get your ticket At the station on the Rock Island Line A, B, C, W, X, Y, Z Cats on the cover but he don't see me Down the Rock Island Line She's a mighty good road The Rock Island Line is the road to ride Yeah, the Rock Island Line She's a mighty good road And if you won't then at the same time alexis corner was also a player in in, in chris's band and um while dad and chris and the ngf were trying to promote uh blues musicians to come over to the to the uk and would you believe the musicians union and uh these post-war watch committees were actually trying to block blues and jazz and these brilliant artists coming over. So fighting tooth and nail, probably the landmark event was uh, 58 Muddy Waters gig at uh, St Pancras Town Hall, where shocker horror, he had an electric guitar. And it, much like Dylan, eight years later, the blues purists sort of almost walked out in, in, in horror. But certainly after that, and 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 then Chris and my dad visited uh, Muddy Waters in 61 in Southside Chicago, one of the few white people who went to his venue and uh, really saw this electric sound. And uh, they swapped Skiffle from the interval set to um, Alexis Corner playing electric blues. And Alexis, pretty soon after, decided to set up the first R&B band, Blues Incorporated, by this time Dad, as well as promoting the Barber Band and uh, you know, doing these sort of 3,000 concerts a year, had managed to find a new venue, which was this uh, venue at the, the basement of the Academy Cinema and uh, became the Marquee Club. So um, that was an obvious place to promote the jazz that was his passion, um, but he was wise enough to, to, to be pretty uh, fluid in terms of the genre it supported. So it wasn't just a trad jazz venue. It wasn't just a modern jazz venue. It embraced all types, including sort of Joe Harriet's free jazz. You had Johnny Dankworth get a residency there with a young Dudley Moore playing the keyboards. And uh, yeah, pretty soon after, Blues Incorporated got a slot. And uh, in some ways, the rest is history. You got uh, Christine Keeler and uh, Mandy Rice Davis came and watched the second week of them playing. And that that created some publicity. Uh, they then got a chance to um, appear on on BBC Radio, a big chance, but that meant their their slot was free. 
there were seven people in the in the band, two or three singers, and uh, Art Wood, who was the singer chosen to uh, appear on the the BBC broadcast, and the other singer, a guy called Mick Jagger, was told, "Sorry, you can't appear." So uh, he hooked up with um, his sort of Moonlight band, which was really run by Brian Jones. I hadn't got a name at the time. Filled in the Blues Incorporated slot and. Uh, the Rolling Stones' first concert. I guess that was probably the transition, the initial transition towards uh, blues and, as you said, a, a landmark record, that Blues Incorporated record. You then got Manfred Mann, uh, who actually was a journalist on my dad's jazz news uh, paper, said, I can play this stuff. So the Manfred Mann came, came and played there. And by this time, we'd also started um, doing festivals. So the first UK open air festival at Bewley and then... Uh, the first Richmond Jazz Festival 61, uh, which of course now is is Reading, world's longest running festival uh, series. And, um, you know, certainly by the time Dad was given six months notice to, to move out of Oxford Street, Rhythm and Blues and Blues and, and Rock was starting to take over. And, and he always said by the time it moved to Wardour Street, that was the sea change. Uh, and, I, and I guess the club moved to the heart of Soho, You've got the beginnings of uh, that sort of wonderful uh, swinging London build-up. And, um, yeah, from that moment onwards, jazz really hardly ever appeared on the bill. And we, after, you know, after the first week, the club only closed for a week. Everything was moved. It looked identical. Friday the 13th, it opened, which uh, is my mum's favourite day of, of uh, whatever year it, it's on. Uh, so not unlucky for us. And, uh, you know, within a week, the Yardbirds recorded their first live album, Five Yardbirds at the club. And I guess then there's just a whole series of um, firsts. Fantastic. Well, that's very well summarised. Let's go to a clip of myself speaking to Jim McCarty about Five Live Yardbirds, then move into a track from that classic LP, Too Much Monkey Business. Eric Clapton was in the band in that period, wasn't he? Yes, he was in from, not exactly from the start, but more or less the beginning. There was another lead guitarist called Top Topham originally there, but he was a bit young for the band and his parents didn't really like him carrying on playing with the band when they wanted him to study and he was a, became a very good artist. He, he studied art and went back to that, so Clapton took his place. It was thought at the time we couldn't really get a great sound in the in the uh, recording studios, you know, for doing a single. We we never We never really got that that sound that we achieved on stage for some reason. So it was thought the best idea was to do a live album and we could get some of that excitement. So we did that Five Live Yardbirds, which turned out quite hectic, but um, it was quite popular. It's fantastic that it's a real time capsule from that, that period before some of the sort of more pop hits that you, that, that came after. Yes, a lot of, the, a lot of those um, recordings seem to be still still sounding good and still quite popular and that seems to be a thing with me in particular with my stuff I've been involved with you know it's all a lot of it seems to become popular much later than it than when it's come out it's quite interesting good evening and welcome and now it is time for birdmerizing yardmerizing in fact most blues wedding yardbirds Here they are, one by one. The drums, Jim McCarty. The rhythm guitar, Chris Dreyer. 
the bass, Paul Samuel Smith. Lead guitar, Eric Slohan Clapton. The singer and harp, Keith Rowe. Thing I wanted to cover was about the uh, the marquee recording studio because I don't know how many people know this and the book does cover that and after this we've got a clip of Ray Thomas of the Moody Blues talking about the recording of a number one track Go Now which was at the marquee recording studios but he outlines that there was building work everywhere and what was the idea of having a, a studio at the marquee I'm glad you asked because, in fact, there was quite a lot more that Robert and I were wanting to put in the book about about the studios. The marquee involved a whole group of companies. It wasn't just the club. There was um, a, pub- a publishing arm, an artist agency, uh, all sorts. So that was always looking at uh, 
how he could um help artists and 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 promote them in all sorts of all sorts of ways but just you know feeding off the club so so this the studios was essentially built at the back of the club and uh you know designed to actually do some uh, dedicated recording or or to record um live events at at the club and yeah amazingly how lucky the and this it was half built at the time and the first first thing that was recorded became a um amazing smash go now uh, i mean I, I don't know in your clip but it was pretty rudimentary the i mean later on it became quite pioneering in, in some ways in terms of the desks it brought but at that stage it was pretty basic and and actually the relatively innovative uh, ending of go now was all due to a, a mistake and wiping the track having to hastily re-record it and compromise about some mistakes at the end isn't it ironic that often it's mistakes that lead to something being a little bit different and what many people won't know is the association the marquee in terms of the stock and waterman sound which was everywhere in the uh, mid to late 80s and early 90s well again the, the studio was uh often very busy and uh you know as we've talked about some of the things that were recorded there the clash Tommy Gunn single, uh, Baker Street by Jay Rafferty, um, a Monty Python album even, The Wombles. And uh, the most surprising is um, the worldwide smash, The Dead of Alive, uh, You Spin Me Right Round, which really bankrolled Stock Aiken and Waterman. They'd done pr- two previous recordings at the uh, at the studio, that song by Divine. Much to our annoyance, they uh, they actually then pinched our uh, our leading engineer and set up the hit factory a few miles away rather than stayed at the at the studio but uh yes that was that was one of our other successes great story in the in, in the book about it isn't it that they're staying up all night to, to get it finished because it had to be it had to be ready for the following morning to play to the uh, executives yeah they were up all night and i think i think the monitor broke at three o'clock in the morning it did yeah the only guy that could could mend it lived in south end and they had, they had to drive up from south end at three o'clock in the morning to fix the fix the uh the monitor the first recorded version of Go Now, the first time you did that in the studio? Yeah. I read that that was quite a long recording process, or the, the production of that track was. Is that something that you recall? Oh, yeah. I mean, the strange thing was, give you a bit of the background that led up to it, we were always a working band, you know, and, uh, you know, we was either gigging or recording. Anyway, when we first came down to London, we were starting to play rhythm and blues then. In different bands, had a night at the Marquee Club. Man from Man had a night. Yardbirds had a night. And Long, Long John Baldry had a night. There was three that come to mind. And uh, Paul Jones got laryngitis, and so they couldn't do their night. And to get into to do a gig at the Marquee was, I mean, it was a the prime gig to do in London, you know. And so Paul couldn't sing, so that they couldn't play. And so we got a call on the afternoon. So unfortunately, we weren't—we hadn't got a gig. They said, "Will you come and and step in?" And so we were in there like a shot, and we went down a bloody storm. I mean, you know, they—they they liked the fact that we were from the north, and we were playing slightly different music. We weren't playing like heavy blues. We were playing stuff like uh, James Brown stuff and Rufus Thomas stuff and whatnot. And so they offered us a night of our own. And so we got involved with the marquee that way. And they had started to build a studio in the back of the club. And so uh, we were looking to, you know, to, for a studio to work in. 
space simple the studio is not finished it's the control room and everything is and so we said we don't give a shit you know <laughs> we'll go in and so we went into the studio after the builders had left at the end of their working day and so we recorded go now underneath ladders and scaffolding and piles of plaster god knows what and that was the very first thing that came out of the marquee studios was Dono. And so that's why it was kind of a long process because, you know, the, when the damn studio wasn't finished. <laughs> <laughs> We've already said things that the uh, the marquee is known for is the who and the who's residency of noted 23 consecutive tuesdays shell Talmy saw them there which led to his involvement with the group and the importance of the marquee to the who cannot be understated 
No, I mean, I think The Who was probably, if you'd ask my dad, probably that and uh, much later on, Marillion are the best two case studies of, because what, what he always loved was working with a management team. And often it's the management team, actually, necessarily, rather than the artist that can make, make the difference. Seeing someone starting out and uh, getting a residence, starting as a support act, building up a fan base, learning their craft, starting bottom of the bill, rising to the top, and then perhaps recording at the at the club. And then through that ecosystem, being seen, spotted, maybe appearing on something like Ready, Steady, Go, getting reviews in the music press, uh, appearing at the at the festival and then headlining the festival. And uh, and then we know we've been really successful when we never see them again. But, you know, we love that story of uh, taking someone from uh, the, if you like, the fuzzy front end where they're figuring it out. And quite often, you know, the story of the marquee is meetings where band people join join bands. Charlie Watts joined the Stones at the marquee, for example. So, yeah, the joy we have is that experience uh, rather than often when you when you see music documentaries or stories of artists, it's almost after they've made it. It's the it's the story of of their albums and their world tours, et cetera, et cetera. But what I find fascinating is, you know, how they got to the position they were at and how they got signed. They took over the 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 worst night of the week, which was Tuesdays. We committed to a long term project. We had a unique sort of model that we basically shared the risk with the artist quite often. So so you would share the door take 50-50. And luckily, I guess there's some advantage of my dad being a sort of a scrupulous accountant that they could always trust that we would be honest with the the, the takings. I remember there was a tale once when one of the US acts came and put a clicker person with a clicker on the door because um, quite often you couldn't trust venues. And to their amazement, we actually paid them more than half their clicker said uh, came through the claim through the door. Yeah, it was it was a shared endeavor. Uh, you know, the, the first few uh, nights of the Who pretty empty but the story i like is there's iconic yeah it's it's modern it's the start of modern day marketing so there's that iconic poster that was put together without the lead singer on the on it black and white stark r&b at the marquee that fly poster was put all around london the who girded their loins and created a um a homage to sherlock holmes and a a, a gorilla marketing campaign if you like the a thousand eyes where mods all over all over London came and leafleted and encouraged people to turn up. And then word of mouth, the people who went in for those first few weeks, there's some brilliant eyewitness accounts. And they thought, I can't believe what's hit me. This wall of sound, this smashing of uh, equipment at the end, it just created a buzz. And um, pretty soon it was packed. And then by the end of their residency, obviously they were a famous name uh, and there were queues around, around, around the block and, uh, They'd made their name. And I think actually it was an interview with Giorgio Gamelski. He said the residencies were such an important thing because it's almost like a gym class for acts that you know, if you're not a tight band by the start of that residency, if you're playing week in, week out, and you're playing to an audience that's probably seen you the previous week, so you have to top what you did the previous week. Boy, is an incentive to get to get good. And of course, it gives you time to build an audience. Word of mouth gets round, and you and if you're good, you get more and more people turning up. And so we're so proud of uh, that experience the Who had. Well, let's play the Who and Heatwave live at the Marquee from the 16th of February 1965, which uh, was filmed for French TV.
And another artist that played a lot in the marquee, including uh, in his very early days, I think the first gig was in 1964 when he was known as uh, Davy Jones. That's, of course, David Bowie. Robert, one of the great things about the marquee was its size in a, in a way, because then that gave the opportunity for smaller artists to really hone the craft as what Nick was talking about when we were covering The Who. Talking of another famous name, Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull told me exactly the same thing. You know, he basically learnt his stagecraft at the marquee because the weird thing is, um, if one sees um, pictures now of, of people so close to the stage reaching out, you know, they can almost touch touch the singer. But back in the 60s and the early 70s, there were actually, uh, I think it was five rows, Nick, five or six rows of chairs that were laid out. So, um there were people sitting down on chairs watch, watching The Who, which is quite strange to think of. And behind them was were, were the people sort of pogoing and, and going mad. So you had that interaction where you could al- you almost talk to them, feeding off them and, um, and, and as Ian Anderson said, learning your craft. So it was a great place for that. But yes, talking about Bowie, Bowie's nineteen seventy three pinups album was was his own personal homage to the Marquis, of course, wasn't it? As um, all the bands that he saw there and learned from. Talking about the Who in twenty two weeks became a a famous name. Bo Bowie took a little longer than twenty two weeks, of course, to to make his name because he played at the Marquis for many years and always failed. Really coming with different bands, the Lower Third, the Buzz, and then he did this thing called the Bowie Showboat. I interviewed um, Dana Gillespie, who was, for some strange strange reason, would turn up in a very tight-fitting dress and was always let in for free by the doorman, for some strange reason. And she was only 15 at the time, I think, and, and at school. And that's where she first met Bowie, came behind her and started brushing her hair and introduced himself, and they became very good friends. So it was, it was a place for where, where people met and uh, forged careers and friendships, and uh, uh, Bowie met Mick Ronson there for the very first time, and asked him to join the Spiders from Mars. Going back to those uh, those chairs that were laid out, Phil Collins used to come from school and used to get in for free because he used to put the chairs out and used to sweep the stage as well. Ironic, years later, he turned up at the marquee to audition for Genesis. Bowie made his first appearance as named David Bowie at the marquee and his last appearance as Ziggy Stardust. So we, uh, we we have a few milestones in the in the David Bowie story. Let's go back to Dana Gillespie, who I spoke to a few few years ago, talking about the music scene around the marquee and, the, and and some of the bands that she followed, and that famous moment where she met David Bowie. What a time to be a teenager and living in, in central London. And, and you mentioned going to the marquee, and you mentioned you saw bands like the Who and the Yardbirds, as well as uh, David Bowie in his early guys. Well, of course, in those days, he wasn't Bowie, he was Jones. But, yeah, I was a massive Yardbirds fan in the early 60s, so I would go down to to the marquee whenever I could, or if they were playing at the Crawdaddy Club in Richmond or in Croydon, I would be there. It wasn't just the Yardbirds. You had, obviously, the Who. In fact, at the beginning, I think they were even called the High Numbers. And then there was uh, another favourite of mine was a group called Gary Farr and the T-Bones. And then because I've always lived in South Kensington, that meant that the one club round the corner from me, the Cromwellian, had bands like the Artwoods, that's Ronnie Wood's brother Art. And then you had eventually Steam Packet, which was Long John Baldry, known affectionately as Ada Baldry, and um, with Rod Stewart and Julie Driscoll and... Young, well, 
he was still Reg Dwight, then Elton, sometimes on keyboards. So I, I never missed days at school, although I, because I was always kind of rather good and, I mean, I wasn't a rebel in one sense, but I was in that my life was leading me to music. That was the thing I adored more than anything else. And I, I just was able to go to all these great places. And a lot of people always seem to want to know, how did I first meet Bowie? Well, of course, he, I think he was actually supporting Gary Farr and the T-Bones that night. And, you know, he came up to where, at the end of the show and I was brushing my waist length slightly a few peroxide blonde streaks in it hair and he took the brush out of my hand and carried on brushing and said can I come home with you tonight I think I was 14 and I said yes <laughs> as one does <laughs> and I introduced him to my parents the next day and they didn't freak out they were astounded to see somebody with such long yellow le lemon yellow hair because the uh, people didn't have hair that length in those days the other aspect is a place of, of the marquee is, is where Bands were formed up. It was a way of, of linking up musicians, which was really important. And shortly we'll have a clip from uh, John Hutch Hutchinson, who I spoke to back in 2016, about him turning up at the uh, at the Marquee with no band to play with and, and, and speaking to Jack Barry, who I think was the manager of the Marquee, asked if anybody who needed a, a guitarist and Jack ultimately linked him up with uh, David. So the role of the Marquee in terms of being that connection for musicians to collaborate with each other must have been crucial. Yeah, I mean, often they were in the audience. So again, someone like The Faces uh, saw The Who, we were talking about The Who, were at some of those Who gigs and then you know wouldn't have thought that uh, you know a year or two later they would be on stage breaking their own records in terms of attendances. So I guess it inspired people to um, to almost pick up instruments. I mean, uh, Clapton famously, again, came from Ripley, saw Blues Incorporated play and went home and asked his uh, his grandparents for a guitar. And then later on played at the Marquee many times. He actually met um, Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker at the, the club and uh, saw those great blues uh, players. So uh I think it's a place where you get inspired and it's also where you 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 meet people and 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 hook up and you jam jam with them and don't we all need a place you go to be discovered to be signed to meet collaborators isn't that how creativity and breaking new boundaries happens and and lucky enough it was it was the right place at the at the right time with the right management to allow that natural gravitational pull to flourish how did you uh, sort of hook up with David and uh, in, into the buzz back in, I don't know, was it 65 or 1966? Yeah, well, the, the actual date will be in my book, but I've forgotten it since I put it in the book. <laughs> Whatever it was, it was while I was waiting to go back to Sweden, where I've been playing with a Swedish band for a while. Uh, and I had some kind of work permit issues that weren't sorted out. So I went to London just to uh, just to wait and have a look around, really. And I walked into the Marquee Club one afternoon. The Marquee Club was closed, but Jack Barry was there. It turned out that he was Jack Barry, the, the manager of the Marquee Club. Just him there at the desk. I realized the place was closed, but I asked him if he thought he knew of anybody that might be looking for a guitar player. And he gave me a number straight away. He said, yes, I do know a young guy called... Uh, I think he might have even called him David Jones, and it was around the time when he, when David was changing his name from David Jones to David Bowie. But certainly as soon as I made arrangements to turn up at this audition, he was calling himself David Bowie. But anyway, the audition was a few days later at the Marquee Club, probably a Saturday afternoon, I think. 
and I just turned up with a Telecaster and I was asked to go on stage with a band that was there, but the band declined and <laughs> they decided that they would rather promote their band as a whole. So I, I had to go on stage on my own, um, which I didn't mind. And all I could do really was play a few riffs and uh, somebody shouted out, play a bit of Bo Diddley. So I, I did a bit of that and then straight away they shouted back, yes, thanks very much, next, you know. And I thought, well, that's that, you know, I ain't going to get that gig. But uh, as soon as I came off stage, uh, David's road manager, Spike Palmer, he came over and said, uh, David wants you in. Uh, and so I got the gig and within a couple of weeks we were rehearsing and uh, not long after that we were playing as David Bowie and the Buzz. Also location, location, location. It was in the, it was in the perfect place. Complete accident. A wonderful story um, when uh, Harold was looking, was sort of given six months notice to, to quit the academy and he was looking at various places, mostly basements. And he was walking down Wardour Street with his estate agent and the estate agent just happened to bump into a fellow uh, a colleague um, and they stopped and had a chat and sort of Harold was sort of I don't know fiddling in his pockets while waiting for them to finish and he just heard overheard this word or this sentence you know this place is free this place is empty and Harold wanted to wanted to know what they meant by that and they, they were literally standing outside where the marquee became Harold asked them to 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 go in and he wanted to have a look around and it was it was perfect it was a stroke of luck because Soho was the sort of the home of the, the British music industry with the publishing company so close down in Denmark Street and uh, all these sort of would-be musicians, wannabe stars, all hung around all the coffee bars. It was the perfect location, as Nick said, at the perfect time. Given the locality in central London and back in, in the 60s, the amount of uh, TV crews that were down there, radio crews, and I also want to feature a, a Radio London clip with David Bowie from 1966, which I think was around the yep. time of the show. But yep. going forward a few years, um, October 1973, we've got Bowie filming there for three days of the 1980 floor show. With There's a great track where he's duetting with Marianne Faithful and I Got You, Babe. So... You've got film crews, radio recordings with artists and whatever, and, and that place in central London was just a natural place for the media to go to, as well as being part of other elements of the music industry. It was also home of the British movie industry as well, Water Street. You had all the um, British film companies. You had Hammer House. You had 20th Century Fox very close by. So you had sort of movers and shakers in the film business. And it all built up later on into the 70s where you had um, journalists, music journalists were always hanging around the their offices were close by, and uh, instead of going uh, at the end of the, the working day, instead of going into a into a pub, they'd go into the marquee for a, for their couple of pints, and they'd catch a band. To hone your craft and find band members and uh, to get a, a following was uh, a primary objective, but you were also aware that you were much more likely to get featured in uh, Melody Maker or the NME by playing at the marquee, or you might well get a record label come and sign you, or a manager. And as we said, all those things are vitally important as a stepping stone. You've got the Sex Pistols who played one one gig uh, and got banned, and the Stranglers, but on the back of that, they both got their first reviews in the music press. That was critical, and of course that made such a difference to so many artists, whether it was sort of Pink Floyd getting signed or, you know, famously... In, as we said, in that little grubby, uh, graffiti-strewn um, dressing room, Queen getting signed, you know, Duran Duran, uh, Free, or, or or the Jam, uh, the Pretenders, you know, even Iron Maiden, they all got they all got signed at the marquee. 
And now a young British boy whose career will surely develop him into one of the bigger names in the showbiz field. He's a great attraction here at the Marquee, and his name is David Bowie. David, you're working with the backing group, the Bowie. Have you always been with them? As David Bowie, yes, I've always been with them for about six months. Why do you say as David Bowie? You worked as somebody way. else before that. <laughs> this is what? Your second record, and it's a song you wrote. Uh, yes, I write most of the stuff I record, the B-sides and A-sides. I understand there are plans for something much more ambitious from you. At the moment, I'm concentrating on a musical with my a and Tony Hatch. Now, is this going to be a pop-type musical or a street musical? Not at all. It's going to be perfectly legit. Well, surely writing this musical is going to take up quite a bit of your time mm -hmm. for the next few years. Yeah. Do you still think you'll be able to carry on and, and continue your pop career? I hope so. I'd like to get into cabaret, obviously. Well, how would you change your act? I have uh, one or two ideas on that as well. Which you won't mm -hmm. no. <laughs> expand no. upon. You don't see yourself as another Tommy Steele? Not at all, no. Just as the first original David Bowie? I hope so. Well, thank you very much, David, for talking with us here on stage at the Marquee. Say we're young and we don't know And we won't find out until we go I don't know if all that's true But you've got me and maybe I've got you See, our love won't pay the rent Before it turns, our money's always spent I guess that's so, we don't have a lot But at least I'm sure of all the things we've got Good night. I got you. I got you to hold me tight. I 
one of those mythical acts was uh, Jimi Hendrix and we next got uh, Hey Joe recorded for Beat Club and this was live at the Marquee, which is just a wonderful uh, recording. There's a great story in the book which Jimi Hendrix playing and there was uh, noise complaints by residents at the back of the club. It was um, not during the gig itself, it was during the, the afternoon rehearsal. One of Nick's relatives. Was it your auntie? Or... It was my aunt. Yeah, there's a brilliant YouTube clip actually of Chris Squire talking about that experience because, uh, you know, before, yes, he was in a band called The Sin and they were they were supporting act. And as I said, the marquee are on, uh, you know, was, was paying percentages. So The Sin were on a percentage of the uh, the main act and uh it wasn't announced the jimmy hendrix um concert so so they were a bit upset that they traveled all this way to play and uh the person they thought they were supporting had pulled out and they thought oh god we're not going to get any money now uh so i went to one of those famous coffee shops and uh looked with a gog when they kept they saw this queue start to form and get longer and longer and longer and thought wow we're uh we're in the money walked in saw Hendrix rehearsing so you know introduced himself had 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 a chat didn't think they were up to much actually in the rehearsal went back out didn't didn't think anything of it and then of course was blown away um as were all the great and the good of the of the you know all the rock rock gods of the uh, British music industry were in, on those seats in the front row whether it was the the Beatles representatives of King Crimson uh you know Pete Townsend Clapton, they were they were all there just to study close up that uh, that amazing technique. We all need benchmarks, don't we, or, or people to inspire us. And I think uh, Hendrix just provided that in '67, a real uh, a real step change. Well, yeah, that story. That story is yeah. During those those afternoon rehearsals, people were phoning the marquee office asking what the hell the noise was. And um, I think it was your auntie had to go down and ask Mr. Hendrix if he could quietly turn it down. It was the one concert that actually Phil Collins missed because he queued up uh, for hours and was let in. And normally you would have a support act play, then the main act, then the support act again, and then the main act. So there'd be four different sets. And Phil Phil Collins, because he was probably only 15 or something, he had to get back to Hounslow so he, to get the last train, 15 or 16. And much to his uh, surprise, actually, Hendrix just played one long set, but the Sin played two support sets first. So he had to leave to get the train back before Hendrix came on stage. So it was the one gig he regrets missing. <laughs> Yes, I did. 
element weaved into the book is the National Jazz and Blues Festival, which ultimately evolved into Reading. Nick, maybe talk about the birth of that festival and how, how that run into the 60s and, and then after. I mean, we always called it the uh, the Marquis Garden Party. So effectively, it was what you did in August. Complimentary uh, showcase for those artists that if you wanted to induce them to a wider stage. We said all the benefits of the intimacy of the marquee and the fact you could get signed there and reviewed, but there's only so many people that could uh, watch you play. And indeed, it was London-centric, so couldn't you play to a much wider audience through a festival? And and as I said, um, actually, Dad had been lucky enough to be asked to do the first ever UK outdoor festival by uh, Lord Montague in, in Bewley in 1956, would you believe? They fell out after the first year with a, a different view of how festivals should should uh, evolve. And um, four years later, you had this thing called the Battle of Bewley that was live on BBC TV that gave both festivals and jazz a really bad name. Dad was invited back to try and rescue it the next year and declined. But he was always on the lookout of, well, I did the first one. How can I do it properly and right? Actually, it was after marrying my mum, who worked for him, and they got married in 60. And mum actually... A family home was Richmond Fire Station. And uh, just down the road was a venue that that, that Dad discovered that, that he could use to host a festival, which was at, you know, at Richmond. Um, it was the old athletics club. His father-in-law was the chief fire officer of Richmond, so got invited to the various events. And he tagged along to this Horse of the Year show, wasn't particularly interested, started daydreaming and thinking, well, I could put on a festival here. So got out of his seat and wandered around to try and find who was in charge and you know said can I put a festival on here and they brushed him away and said oh, how dare you you know we're not gonna let any these ruffians around here at Richmond's the royal a royal borough etc etc and then much to his surprise a few months later he got a phone call to say um you know that festival 
we think we might be on for it. He later found out they'd taken out a huge insurance contract on the grandstand, hoping that uh, these hordes would actually burn down the building and uh, give them a huge payout, which, of course, never happened. But luckily, by happenstance, that led to the, the first festival in 61. By 63, we uh, did, again, Georgia Gomelski a favour, and uh, he was managing the stones at the time and uh you know put on put on the stones and uh, I, I think it's a it's a sort of famous moment when uh you know Ackerbilt was on the main stage and suddenly all these uh sort of architect looking uh, young men with uh, black polo neck uh, shirts were were swamped by screaming women that, that uh ran towards the stones and they had to move the stones out of the clubhouse and into into a um a tent and uh they came back a headline the following year. Yeah, our time at Richmond was always going to be limited, and then then we were moved out to to Windsor and a few other race courses. And uh, by that time, it had become a, the first rock festivals. And uh, you saw, say in '67, um, Fleetwood Mac made their first ever appearance at the festival and at the club the following week. Uh, and the year before, actually, um, a band that hadn't got a name but was soon named Cream made its first ever appearance at the festival uh and and again back at the club so uh it was a place to give artists a chance and it was a it was a place to try and build up an industry really because it's hard to imagine that festival culture didn't exist it was a a surprise when people turned up wanting to camp actually quite often actually scandinavians and people from europe and uh we had to improvise and create campsites etc etc there was no such thing as trackway had to discover trackway had to find out about you know portable toilets all the industry that's there now, stages, wristbands, we're actually the first people to use wristbands, uh, lasers, video screens, sound amplification, all, all this stuff had to be figured out. And lighting. Lighting, we were approached by a, a guy who uh, was doing some innovation with the lava lamps and said, I could make the you know the stage look um, pretty innovative. And so... Dad loved uh, loved entrepreneurs and said, "Okay, well, you know, set up at the back of the marquee, and and this is uh, the birth of Entech, which is still going strong. I'm the chairman of it. We still do world tours for lots of artists, and uh, we were the original sound and lighting company. You had uh, the WEM sound system uh, that people thought that maybe maybe your eardrums would uh, would melt if uh, if you actually got a one kilowatt system and um, had some problems at the first festival. But it, some people thought it wouldn't be able to be achieve but once it was achieved of course that industry uh grew and grew uh so i guess it was a place for firsts which we're most proud of let's have a little snippet of some wonderful archive footage from uh, 1967 the seventh national jazz and blues festival where got a clip about the hippie scene and, and arthur brown which i think is wonderful and then move into and i think it is probably a slightly dodgy audience recording here so do bear with us We've got a clip of Fleetwood Mac and World Keep On Turning from that first ever gig of Fleetwood Mac. Just two things on that Fleetwood Mac uh, performance. They'd just broken from uh, uh, John Miles Bluesbreakers, and and even though they called were called Fleetwood Mac, the Mac element of it hadn't joined them yet. So he was actually still at John Miles Bluesbreakers, and uh, Mick Fleetwood was uh, trying to persuade him to to join. And he was watching in the wings as they performed that that show and uh, signed up and joined a few weeks afterwards. Interesting enough, also uh, appearing on the same bill was uh, Chicken Shack with uh, Christine Perfect, 
who again soon uh, both got married and joined Fleetwood Mac. So, uh, you know, as well as it being its first gig, it was almost a uh, recruitment drive for future band members. The National Jazz Festival is a sort of teenager's ascot. For the 50,000 mod music lovers who crowded into Windsor at the weekend, the latest fashions were almost as important as the entertainment on stage. Not surprisingly, perhaps, because this is the year of the hippies, or flower people, whose colourful taste in costume make the miniest of miniskirts look traditional. The flower people have their own taste in music, and their favourite performers are not necessarily big names in the pop charts. For them, the highlight of this festival was a relatively unknown singer called Arthur Brown. And don't be misled by his unoriginal name. Most of the people here agreed that his act was definitely swinging. Well, what's the point of all the, all the paraphernalia? We're coming in by a crane, pictures on the screen at the same time as the music going on. Paraphernalia? What do you mean by paraphernalia? All the additional stuff. This is a usual Western cynicism. What we're really doing, you see, we're not doing anything. It's the audience who's doing it. The audience is sitting out there appreciating what we may or may not be perpetrating, which may be perjury, falsehood, or any type of obscenity. And... <laughs> cease! Cease fire. Oh. Um... We are merely trying to evoke some response in the audience. I feel that uh, music, per se, on the stage is a bit dead, you know. And we're trying to introduce theatrical techniques, any technique that evokes a response, you know.
as we move into the 1970s and status quo were a group that had a strong association with the marquee as well as reading festival they uh a bit of a psychedelic act weren't they in the late 60s and they suddenly i've got a lovely story of someone who was there in the dressing room and they turned up in their finery and then they opened their suitcases to get their blue jeans and levi jackets out it was <laughs> that was the start of it really I think they famously played for um, a promotional, uh, I think it was 1P, to get get in to see them. Slade, I think their first gig there was playing support for Yes. And at the time, Slade were um, almost sort of skinheads. So it was a, it was a learning for them trying to engage a, a, a prog audience. But yeah, I, I actually like all the stories of all the, uh, all the support acts who uh, then went on to become... Uh, famous and uh, of course you've got the classic one where joy division supported the cure as well and we haven't got it in the book but for fun i i created a little list of the best combination of headliner and support act and status quo actually featured in that twice actually you had some weird and wonderful ones as well didn't you i, th- I think uh, slade of the support act for the bonzo doodah battle some strange combinations where you think you know half well the majority of the audience wouldn't know what the hell was going on with watching the watching the support act one of my favourite ones is uh, Sparks. Sparks and uh, the support band that night was Queen. There's also a great gig from 1971. It's Bowie, James Taylor and the Straubs. When we interviewed Carl Layton Pope for the uh, book, who did some odd jobs at the club and was also a um, a punter there and, and later went on to manage bands like UFO, the Yardbirds and uh, Wham and still promote Brian Adams and uh, Michael Bublé. So he knows a bit about uh, music and he would say whether he was in the audience or uh, or working at the club, there were certain bands that he watched and he just heard a song and he thought immediately that is going to be a hit and I'm not going to see them at the marquee again. I think Spencer Davis was one example he gave where he just, he just heard them. Actually, I think it was seeing the song that they wrote at the studios, Give Me Some Loving, and uh, he just knew it would be a worldwide hit. And can you imagine just that moment of hearing a song and you think, Right, that's going to be huge. Well, I, I interviewed um, Muff Winwood. It's a lovely story about how that song was written. It was written relatively quickly. They were put in the in the studio by Island Records to come up with some original material. They rented the, the place out for the whole day and they showed up in the morning. And I think within about half an hour, the riff and sort of satisfied with what they'd done, uh, they went to a local cafe and had some breakfast because they hadn't eaten. The head of the Island Record turned up and they weren't in the studio and he, took him a while to find out where they were. And he stormed into the cafe and bawled them out in front of everybody that they weren't at the marquee where they should be, writing some some music. And they said, but we've, we've done it. We've come up with a hit. They took him back and um, played in the song and said, OK, yeah, yeah, OK, you've got a hit record there. To status quo, before we get into their song, Don't Waste My Time, live at Reading from 1973, Status quo management were actually in offices directly above the marquee, weren't they? So was that owned by the marquee organisation or was that a coincidence? No, it was. So the head office, if you like, of the NGF and uh, managing the, the Chris Barber band and uh, all the various activities was often separate to the club in various areas of Soho. But um, eventually the opportunity came to take the first floor above above the club. It was too big for um, quite a lot of that space. And uh, Charisma Records were, were, were famously there. We had Billy Gaff that was um, Rod Stewart's manager and the status quo management team uh, and, of course, the studios. So um, it was quite a nice cosmopolitan mix. And, of course, what happened is uh, at the end of uh, the office day, 
they would all go down to the marquee bar to have a drink. This is track from that bar driver album. Think I don't waste my time.
So by the mid to late 70s and you get into the pub and then the punk rock scene, a lot of the smaller clubs had closed by then. So the marquee had an even more pivotal role. Yeah, I mean, uh, back to the the thing my dad was proudest about. I mean, I guess as a trained accountant, he tried to run things soundly. So the fact that you... You didn't just have one big explosion and then, you know, some famous event and then went bust. He Reading was the longest running and still is the longest running uh, festival series and uh, very proud that carried on going. So I think in 74, every other every other festival, for example, didn't happen for various reasons and, and Reading, Reading did. And similarly, the club was run on a sustainable basis. And so it could um, carry on from 58 continuously until we we ended up selling the club to Billy Gaff and Rod Stewart's manager in 86. So that's quite a long run, 30 years to sort of open every day and make sure you don't overstretch yourself. Part of the benefit was actually signing a long lease. So back to Robert's point that uh, once we found that uh, venue, which was um, an old Burberry warehouse, and uh, surprisingly, although it felt like you were in a basement, it was all on the ground floor, the Marquee Club. Uh, Dad managed to negotiate uh, a very long lease, and uh, even even better, he didn't have the money to pay for it. So, so when he when he went in to uh, negotiate, he said, uh, "I'll take this off you." He found out it'd been empty for a year, but I tell you what, if you lend me the money to pay the deposit and my first weeks or months' rent, I'll start to pay you back monthly. So, yeah, managed to get a, a, a great deal. And there were many rent rises put in to the contract. So uh, I think that helped a lot. And then over time, of course, getting a um, a drinks license, because in the early years, the marquee was the West End's biggest seller of uh, Coca-Cola, but uh, didn't have a drinks license, much thanks to the uh, the, the ship and uh, many of the local uh, drinking venues who benefited from from that. And and also, if like the green room of the marquee, which was La Chasse, which was owned by uh, Jack Barry, our manager. All these things helped to add income. And that profit share with the artists also helped. So yeah, the economics of running a club is difficult. That's why a lot of them came and went. Also, if you, if you pin your mask to just one genre, you live and die as that genre lives and dies. And I guess the skill of the the marquee was it it was always home to many tribes. And you would have, for example, you know, one night you'd have the punk rock scene playing or new wave. The next night you'd have the new wave of uh, British heavy metal playing. And they all thought it was their own club and their own nights. And so that allowed it to ride those different waves of musical genre. Robert, before we move into the next track, which is Eddie and the Hot Rods Gloria, which is from Live at the Marquee, I can't think of many venues that have got so many records called Live at the Marquee or have been recorded at the Marquee. Yeah, I, I guess because it had such a unique ambience that when people played there, they all thought if we're going to do a live album, the Marquee is the place to do it. Also, um, because it was a, a small, such a small place, so if you got sort of 500 people in, you, you create a fantastic sound uh, on the record. And I also, I think the fact that the marquee had its own, which I think must be unique for a live venue to also have a recording studio. I guess that must have been certainly very rare, if not unique. So a lot of bands were recording there. So it made sense also if they were playing that night, like Marillion, they used to record, uh, they recorded their first album during the afternoon and they would play in the evening. So it made sense then to, to also record um, a live album there as well. Quite a lot of them are bootlegs. You know, for example, I, I think the first re- released tracks of Iron Maiden and Guns N' Roses were 
were like live uh, EPs recorded at the uh, at the marquee, but they weren't necessarily always official. And they were very sort of amateur at the start. It was literally a microphone on a on a on a long piece of bamboo or something. It was it was really I mean it was literally almost as amateur as that right at the start. And I don't think it, it got much more professional, did it? I don't. I, although Motorhead had uh, the was it the Rolling Stones portable studio or something? Yeah, I mean a lot of them again organised it themselves.
our last track, I, I thought it'd be quite fitting to have an audio clip from the old Grey Rissle test from 1985, which is Marillion and Bittersweet recorded live at the Marquee. And we touched on this at the start in terms of bands, the venue being pivotal for their career. And Marillion was a band played there a lot when they were on the rise and then continued to go back to the marquee in, in the 1980s, given their love for the venue. Fish famously uh, went to the last night, took one of the uh, bar pumps home with him as a memento. So uh, the three regulars you would see propping up the bar would be Lemmy, who would be usually on the Pemble machine, Phil Linnett and Fish. So they would pretty much be there if they weren't playing somewhere. And if they were either too big to be playing at the marquee, they'd probably be propping up the bar. There also were occasionally secret concerts. So if um, a band was seen to be too big to come back, they would do a, a secret concert, which would be probably a warm-up gig before they were playing Wembley Arena or something. Brian Adams did a warm-up gig before he played uh, he Sported Tina Turner at Wembley Arena. And Meridian did uh, a, a secret gig, a Genesis Famously, Fish was at that. Police as well. Yeah. The Genesis concert was so busy that um, a couple of people were on the roof listening through the uh, through the skylight. <laughs> the secret of a secret gig, of course, was that um, it wasn't a secret, that everybody knew about it because the, the, the last thing you want is to be so, so secret that nobody turns up, which did happen on occasions. Funny story about the, the secret concert for the police is that so few people turned up, just a few sort of fan club members, that uh, publicity people for the police were so so disappointed and so, so, so angry that they actually went out into the street and were asking people walking past if they wanted to see the police. I don't think they got any takers because I don't think anybody believed them. Marillion's... Uh... Probably least known live recording at the marquee is is for um, he knows you know the single the chat at, at the front of it on the on the phone is actually the uh, the marquee switchboard that they just put a feeder mic in to uh, to get some of the uh, secretaries talking that formed the start of the song. It's amazing the groups that played the marquee in the eighties. You've got U two, REM, and Guns and Roses. But um, Nick, do you think when your dad sold the marquee to Billy Gaff and then? The Wardour Street site was sold off for development and the move. And although the marquee continued in some form for the next two decades, what now could be seen as that classic era had gone, really. Everything has a time and a place. And uh, certainly certainly, my dad felt that probably you, if, you, if you're not careful, you end up trying to be a pale imitation of what you used to be. So uh, he certainly felt that uh, once the lease was up and there was a decision to buy the, the building or not, he thought, I'm not a property developer. He felt that the time was right. And uh, it's not great when you're bringing up a family to be uh, driving up to Soho every day. And uh, he didn't; he wouldn't often stay that that late. But you've got other things in life. So I think he felt it was time to, to move on. And, um, you know, a change of management, a change of become, to be honest. So when we talked to staff, they, they felt that some of the heart and soul had left when Wardour Street got left behind. And I, and I guess also the culture is set by the owner. And uh, we felt that our culture was very supportive, but maybe something gets lost when things change hands. To conclude, it's a fantastic book. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Robert and Nick. Highly recommend it. And it's labelled the story of the world's greatest music venue. And this is a very, very compelling case. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Brilliant. Lovely. Thanks, Jason. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. I don't have to put up with this. Would you welcome, please, live on stage, liver than you'll ever be, Marillion. 
spider wanders aimlessly within the warmth of a shadow. Not the regal creature of Father Kings, but the poor, directionless, misguided familiar of some obscure Scottish poet. The mist crawls from the canal as a primordial phantom of romance to cuddle under a cascade of neon pollen while I sit tied to the phone like an expectant father your carnation will rot in a vase a suicide the driver guzzles another can of lager to wash away the memories of a Friday night down at the club A wallflower at 16 should be a wallflower at 34. Her mother called her beautiful. Her daddy said, Oh.
something's gonna give them to this pressure And the cracks are already beginning to show It's too late The weekend career girl never bought in the play They said this could never happen again Oh, so long, so long This time It seems to be Another misplaced runs even this time It's looking like Another misplaced runs even with you On the outskirts of nowhere, on the railroad to somewhere, on the verge of indecision, I'll always take the roundabout way. Waiting on the rail for hours, ball with a habit from a sound, the habit of the windswept from the sign of the rail. for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.